Amen, amen, amen. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Wednesday night. Uh, those who are here and those online. As you're getting settled in and opening up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, just one key announcement, and that is it's all about VBS these next couple of days here, getting prepared for Friday and uh, at 9 o'clock that morning and on Friday and Saturday as well, 9 to 1 in each day. Um, so I encourage all of you um, to be in great prayer for that uh, event, to commit to bringing your kids to that event, not only commit, then commit to also not only coming, but to invite, invite your friends, uh, neighbors, your, your school friends, reach out, get them, see if they'll plug in, and, uh, and then commit to coming and just enjoy the event and learning and growing. And we thank all the volunteers uh, helping to minister to the children, pray for outreach into the community that they're hearing it through the radio and uh, will be uh, surprise us and fill this place up. I hope we have a panic moment where we have so many kids, we're not even sure what we're going to do, but God will provide in one of those moments, I'm hoping, praying. So, 1 Samuel chapter 2. We have much to cover this evening in the chapter 2. And uh, so I hope you have your pencil sharpened and a backup pencil because you're probably going to wear that one out. So, hey, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this evening, Lord, as we open up your word. Uh, we need you, Holy Spirit, to just illuminate your word to our hearts this evening. Speak to our hearts in a way that we receive, apply, and do. Uh, Lord, let us not just be hearers, but we want to be doers of your word, to apply it, to change us, mold us, shape us, Lord, into more like you. And we just, again, thank you for the opportunity for us to be able to come here. Thank you for this place for us to be able to come to. And again, Lord, speak to our hearts through and by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2. In chapter 1, we heard from a barren woman crying out in prayer to God that she wanted to have a male child. In chapter 2, we will hear now the praise of a blessed woman who heard her prayer answered according to God's way and according to God's timing, and she's going to praise him for it. Now take note, go back later tonight or tomorrow and read Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. The prayer of Mary offered after learning she well, it was bearing a son, and the, what brought about that prayer and that blessing of prayer. And it's also a remarkable or similar to the Magnificent that also was compared with David's song found at the end of, we get to it in 2 Samuel chapter 22. So those are two to go back to and read through and see how similar and how connected they are to the prayer of Hannah's prayer, here we see in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Obviously, it appears Mary knew Hannah's prayer, and it, that's why it sounded so much like what Mary knew from the Old Testament. So here in the very beginning of that prayer, we see in, as we go through this, a, a, a poem or a prayer that is a, a known for a Hebrew type, po, poetic type uh, format. It's not rhythmic, but it has this, this, this comparisons, those parallelisms that we see in Hebrew poetry. And here in verse 1 and 2 it says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. 
So we sit here, and if you remember in chapter 1, verse 28, we ended that with an interesting uh, verse there. It says, so they worshiped the Lord there. It ended there, and it's now moving into now seeing this song of worship that's recorded, a worship song coming out of the heart of Hannah, offered on the very day. The very day she left her one and only little boy that she had been waiting and praying for so desperately she needed to have that boy in her life. And here she is, he's a young man, a young boy I should say, not an infant, but a young boy able to to serve in a capacity we will see in the tabernacle right alongside Eli. And we're going to see he's dropping that child off at the tabernacle never for him him to live in her home again and what did she do not like most of uh, moms and dads dropping their kids off at college where they're weeping and crying all the way home because they're dropping their kids off at college no no she's she's praising and, and worshiping her God for the blessing of the time she had with the little boy the fact that she had a boy that God provided to her but she had committed a vow to turn, that commit, a Nazarene vow of committing that son, if he gave her a son, to commit that son to a life of serving God there at the tabernacle. And sure enough, she followed through with that. And what a moment this is. We see that my heart rejoices. This is a prayer. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn, or the horn means strength. That's a term they use, a horn, like an animal has horns. That's where the strength is, is in the horns. So it's my strength is none besides you. I have no strength apart from you, God. Nor is there any rock, any firm foundation of my life is apart from you. You are my firm foundation. You are my God who is firm and solid that I can stand my life upon. But she rejoices in the Lord. She could not rejoice in leaving her son, but she could rejoice in the Lord. In the most desperate situation she's finding herself in her life, from not having a son to now have giving up her son to the service of God, when we have nothing else to rejoice in. You've lost everything. By a fire, by a flood. By disease, by death, by whatever. You've lost everything. Your situation is so barren, so difficult. You don't rejoice in that. You rejoice in the Lord. Because the Lord has not left you. He is still your rock. He is still your strength. And your heart can still rejoice in the Lord even through those situations of life. The horn is used in the picture of strength in many places in the Bible. Go back to Psalm 75 and Psalm 92 as a reference for you to go and see that that strength, that horn is referenced to, that strength and power, being exalted in the Lord. That is how, it's not because of your power, it's not because of your strength, it's because that you trust in the Lord who is your strength. But notice here, she also, because of that, I can smile at my enemies. <laughs> she knows the enemy's coming against her. her. Her other mother, the other wife, I should say, in the household because of polygamy there, the other wife who was putting a lot of pressure on her because uh, Peninnah had a bit kids and she could not. There was a lot of pressure going on here. And she became an enemy against Hannah But she could smile even through all that because she knows because I rejoice in your salvation, God. God, you have saved me through this situation. You have saved me through what's going on. And I can smile and I know where my strength comes from. What a beautiful moment in Hannah's life, even though it was a difficult time because she is turning her son over to the work of God there by dropping him off there at the tabernacle. Verse 3. In her prayer, you notice there's a warning. There's a, there's, there's a, she's, she's talking about the enemy there. I can smile at my enemies through this because I know, God, you're going to take care of the situation. She continues here in verse 3. He says, talk no more so very proudly. 
Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Oh, she, she had such confidence in who God is and in protecting her and bringing her through this situation, being mocked and ridiculed and because she didn't have a baby. Now God had shown and blessed her with a baby. Now she's you know, handing a, uh, you know, her, her only son over to, at that time, the only son over to, to, uh, to Eli, to the tabernacle, to the service. But here she says, talk no more very proudly. She's talking to, obviously, from her... Uh, you know, her rival who is in her mind there, Peninnah, that you, 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 you're so proud, you were so arrogant all those years because you were having babies and we're in that same household and every time we came up to the time, you were always throwing it in my face and constantly, talk no more, don't be proud anymore, don't be so arrogant. Because God is knowledge, God sees all these things, and by Him His actions are weighed. He sees, He knows all that knowledge. He can the best reason for, to, to forsake any pride in our life, to get rid of the pride in our life. If we would just would just remember, next to God, you know nothing. <laughs> you know nothing. So if your pride is you, just remember, according to God, you know nothing apart from Him. Stay humble because we, he knows us. He knows everything. He knows us by our actions and he weighs everything we say and do. He weighs. He takes it into account in part of her prayer here. I mean, pride can be expressed in many ways. And people always try to couch it in some way to make it always positive and strength and we're, be proud. And, but it's always expressed by words too. Eventually it comes out in the words. And we'd be better if a proud person just would just stop talking so much. Because when they talk, it really you can tell when you start talking to a prideful man or a woman. And that's what she's saying here to her, her rival there, Penina. Just, you should be quiet because God sees all things. Now we see here in verse 4, she continues because she's glorifying God, right? And she's talking about humbleness and the strength she gets from him. And it says, the bows of the mighty men are broken. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He rises, the, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princesses. And makes them inherit the throne of glory. So as she's this prayer, this this Hebrew uh, poetry that is she is 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 played out here. We can see the rhythm here of these words and the comparisons and of of speaking of mighty men and how you might think you have strength and you have all the weapons of 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 war in your in your thing, but you are going to be broken, even if though you have all of those bows. But those who are stumbled and fallen down are going to be girded with strength. They're going to be lifted up. She's reminding, we see how we should be humble before God. Because he knows how to humble the strong. He understands those who, and she was expressing how you were full, you have everything advantage to you. But if God changes everything, you'll be begging here soon. You'll be begging. You'll be on the streets. You had everything and you can change everything just like that. You had many children and you were all proud of that. And oh, you're so, oh, how many kids do you have? Oh, is that all you have and you don't have? Be careful. Because you can be very humbled. You can bind yourself with many children, but very weak, very feeble. No strength continues. 
But those who, who are stumbling, and they'll be girded. They'll be lifted up in strength. And those who are hungry now will no, cease, will no longer hunger. Those who were barren now are going to be born, born seven. They're going to have their, their fill. Be careful in regards to your proudness of where you think you have achieved in your life. Stay humble. If we are weak or in a low place right now in our life, we should wait humbly before God in these weak times in our lives. Wait humbly before God and let him lift us up. We see that reminder in Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. Hannah knew. Hannah knew she was barren because the Lord had closed her womb. We saw that back in verse 6 of chapter 1. She knew where, her st- where she st- stood and where it was at. She didn't understand it, but she knew. And she didn't stop from her crying out to the Lord to answer her prayer. And she knew God first set her low, put her in a position of a brokenness and lowness of her life that she desperately wanted to have a child, but then brought her high and she was praising God. Why? Because she could see the hand of the Lord in all of it. So many times we find ourselves, we don't know what's going on in our lives and why God is allowing certain things and events and situations to play out. But it's always the hindsight that we can see the hand of God. That's why it's so important to write down the things that you're praying for, things that you're waiting for on God and waiting to see and, and, and look and acknowledge and praise Him as Hannah does because you know you were so low, you know you were so uncertainty and there was difficult times. But when God answers prayers and moves you through that, valley, that dark valley, you should be seeing the hand of God in these things. And so many times as you live your life in this life with Christ, the longer you live, the more you see the hand of God working out these situations. You didn't know why these pieces of puzzles were happening, but all of a sudden it starts coming together and the, the, the puzzle starts getting more and more pieces and you're like, wow, that is amazing. How God had us meet certain people, go some places, please places that we never said we would go is now we're there. I mean, just it plays out because God's in control. And you gotta get settled that in your life that He is in control. And at the end of verse 8, there, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of His saints. But the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's a good verse, especially at the very end, to underline Why? Because we see that at the very beginning here, at the end of verse 8, she talks about the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. The actual structure, the actual, the the existence, the, the stability is in the hands of the Lord. And Hannah was absolute confidence in God's ability to humble the strong and exalt the weak. Why? Because God is in control. If God were not in control, then perhaps the strong could do what they wanted. But God couldn't stop them, right? No, no. God could stop any of us. Hannah knew that the foundation of the earth itself was in belonged to the Lord. He, she knew without, without any doubt, she had full confidence, God was in control. Do you? Do you look at the craziness that's going on and forget that God is in control? Not the economic leaders. Not world leaders. Not the one with the most biggest, strongest of armies. But the the head of the technology? No. Remember, God is in control. Period. And when you have that, it brings stability because God is for you. No weapon can be formed against you. 
And when you live with that confidence day in and day out, my brothers and sisters, you won't be rattled by the things that are going to go on in this world. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get darker. It's not going to get better. And Hannah knew this. We must know he has the strength, the knowledge, the wisdom, the power. She says here, by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of you, Lord, shall be broken into pieces. So we see people going against God's people and going against God's ways, going and twisting everything. Wrong will be right, right will be wrong according to the scripture. Every foundational covenant, every covenant, everything that we see in the scripture, the enemy is coming against God's word and twisting it all. Right down to who you, what he created you as male or female. Just twisting everything. That God has said this is truth and twisting. That's what darkness, that's what Satan does. And brings much confusion. No, no, Hannah knew. I'm not worried about my adversaries. Lord, you're in control. You'll break every piece of this. And she says at the very end, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, at this time, Israel did not have a king and didn't seem to want a king. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. They wanted to just live however they wanted to live. So when Hannah spoke of this, his king, and she looked ahead to what? The promise of the Messiah, who will finally set all wrong, wrong things right. Why? Because of, he is anointed, and it's right here in this verse is the first place in the Bible where Jesus is referred to as the Messiah is right here. Remember, the remarkable epithet of Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. Anointed is an English word. Here, anointed in English word means the Messiah. And we see that carried out through and adopted by many of the Old Testament uh, prophets here uh, of David and Nathaniel and uh, uh, Isaiah and Daniel. I mean, there, there was many here. Right into the apostles, right into the New Testament writings. Zacharias, the father of the John the Baptist, quoted Hannah in Luke 169. We see he was prophetically called Jesus a horn of salvation. We all see the quoting from Mary, the mother of Jesus, quoted Hannah's song often in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Beautiful passage. Verse 11, then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So here we are. Elkanah went, right? They, they did it. They, it was a hard-to-do moment. It was a very incredible moment of separation. You can only imagine how that all played out. But they leave their little son behind. But they did it because they promised God. They promised God that's what they would do, and they followed through. See, as young as he was, we don't know exactly the age of Samuel, but Samuel had the ability to had ministered to the Lord, and our young people can praise and please God as well. We sometimes forget that the young kids can praise and give and, and, and please God and serve God in the church, just like Samuel served at the ta tabernacle. Why do we, we, we don't restrict our young kids to serve God? We want them to know God at a younger level. We want them to serve God and to please God and, and to do what God wants them to do in their lives and to grow in that area. Because we know anyone who comes to the Lord, if they don't come to a point where they're 
mature enough to, dis, to add a response to that love, that maturity, that love of getting to know who God is. It's a natural response to serve God. And if we don't give them opportunities to serve and to have opportunities to, to, to respond to what God wants them to do in through their lives, then they will not experience the growth in their, in their walk with the Lord. I was so blessed to hear as things were setting up for VBS that the kids spontaneously I love just wanted to create the little fish that goes in the water I mean these are examples sometimes we think it's it's just oh that cute no no for me that is not just cute that is that is a sign of wanting to serve and be part of and it's part of their growth in their spiritual walk as a young age we want to, young kids to come with their parents to come and serve on the Father's builders. We want them to do that in, in different opportunities and be, to partake because it will help them in their walk with the Lord and experience God in worshiping of that way. Verse 12. We see now the wicked. We saw the blessed. The blessed of Elkanah and, and uh, Hannah and and Samuel and the blessed son and, 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 and what was happening there. Now we see another complete opposite example here. And we see the wicked sons of Eli. The high priests of all people. And his sons who were to be high priests. And all this, it, it, they were wicked. Look at how it played out here. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord Whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. They're in the tabernacle. They're part of the Levitical line. Of course, they're, they, they're, dad's godly. God, God, Eli knows God. Of course their sons are going to know God and they're just going to follow along because it's part of the family. It's what they've always done. It's where they've always been. This is what they expect of us. In the, nothing new under the sun, is it? Happens today in families. And here we find Eli had two sons. He didn't raise them properly. And discipline them properly, teach them properly. They were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Literally, in the ancient Hebrew language here, calls them sons of Baal. Baal was a pagan god. It's a phrase, the sons of Baal, refers to the worthlessness or the wicked men that they were. They, they just... But they were still serving in the tabernacle, in a position of authorities. Not a good thing. And we will see the consequences that will play, take place here. Because that's a significant problem. Because these were the sons of Eli, the high priest. They were in line to succeed him in that, that role, that function of, of the priestly line. But they didn't know the Lord. But guess what? That wouldn't have stopped them from continuing to take on the position because of the, just a natural line from the genealogy. They thought it was just going to pass right on. And God said, oh no, it's not going to. Look what happens. The very, very first offense is, is highlighted why they're not going to do it. They're not going to continue. It says right here in the priests in verse 13. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, a priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or a kettle or a cauldron or a pot, and the priest would take for himself at that flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat. Oh, that's a key note here. That's that, not good here. We'll talk about that. But before the, they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give my meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. That's interesting. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Oh, that's godly. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. 
verse 17, is the consequence of God of leaders in a church or here in this case the tabernacle not living and doing a godly way and the consequences that has on others notice that in verse 17 see here we have with all the sacrifices we know what the scripture tells us how this was all supposed to play out when they brought the sacrifices when they brought the sacrifices to the tabernacle a portion was given to God the very first portion and a portion was then also given to the priest. And the priest was able to take some of that portion. And a portion was also kept by the one who brought the offering so that they could have a meal offering with the family and those who they were giving out as a blessing to them. We saw that in chapter 1 when Echna, Elkanah gave to his two wives, if you remember, right? So this is how it's supposed to play out. But according to other passages in the Old Testament, see, the priests received a portion of the breast and shoulder. They were a very specific place where they were able to do it. They didn't just get to go in and grab any of the meat. They had to grab a very specific part of the animal. But now, some 400 years after the law of Moses provided and said this is how you were to do it, the priestly custom, they decided to change it. They did not take the prescribed portion of the breast and the shoulder. No, no, these two sons literally took a fork, flesh hook, and brought out of the pot whatever they wanted in any part of the meat. Matter of fact, that it was even worse than that. Because the first portion that goes to God was always before, they wanted it before the fat, and God's portion was always given first. So it was wrong to take the priest's portion before they burned the fat for the purpose of praising and worshiping God. Because they believed fat was the best part of that animal. And so when they burned the fat, that part of it was all for God. But no, no, they wanted to come in and just grab the best meat and they even wanted it raw. Why did they want it raw? Well... Perhaps it was so they could prepare it any way they pleased. They didn't want it boiled in the way they did it. They wanted to, to season it and do it whatever they wanted to do with it. Or they wanted it raw because they took it and they used it to then turn around and sell it to make more profit. They pocketed the money selling the meat to other people. See, when God says you need to do it to please him and his way, when you think you have the power, especially if those in, uh, God is allowed to be in a position of responsibility within the church body, and you think you can worship and do, everyone else has to do it a certain way, but you get to do it a different way and, and live a different way, and you can do it and have your choice, and you get to all your premium, and you get to always have the best parking spot, and you can always have the this and the that, and you can go down the list of always thinking you, you, you deserve it because of the position you're in. It is not godly, not right, not good. Not good. Especially if you start trying to make profit off of God's worship of others. Watch out. But here we see, where's Eli in all this? Where's dad? Where's dad when you're watching the two sons go awry and having a field day on, on, on sacrifice every day? They're obviously in a position of, of, of working this through and making sure everything going smoothly in the, in the tabernacle and watching over it. But it was only because they had control to be able to gain from that old deal. Where's dad focused on preparing the, the prayer and doing other things that the high priest was supposed to do, especially inside the tabernacle. But here the greed of Eli's sons was so bad that they didn't hesitate to use what? Violence. And threatened these men who were bringing the sacrifice for their families. And they're sitting there and they're doing their own thing. And the people go, wait, 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 what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that. It's first supposed to be burned and the fat is supposed to be for God. And then you're supposed to only take this portion. But you're coming with these hooks and just taking as much as you can. And you want it raw before we do it. Wait a minute, that is not how God says we're supposed to do this. And they say, you open up your mouth, I'm going to take you out. 
We'll stop you and be able to come and worship at all. I mean, the threat and the violence came playing out there because they were dare to tell them what the word of God said we're supposed to do, we're supposed to do it. Nothing new under the sun these days, right? But look at what, like I said in verse 17, look what the consequences. These men who were bringing the sacrifice for their family to worship God, because of the violence and because of the pushback from these religious leaders, the high priest's sons who are in positions of authority within the body there, it caused them to abhor, caused them to hate coming to the tabernacle. It caused them to not want to come and worship God. See, the greatness of the sin of Eli's sons is so clear here. Because of their greed, because of their violence, because of their intimidation within the tabernacle, those who are coming to worship God, they made others want to come and bring, no longer bring offerings, no longer come into the tabernacle, no longer getting involved. It was bad enough where they caused themselves not only bring judgment upon themselves of that, but it also had a great effect on others who wanted to come and freely serve God, worship God. We have to be very careful with even within the body of the church that we do not do anything at any place where we sit there and through threatening and violence or any kinds of stuff to get people to... No. It's got to be a, a place of rest, a place of refuge, a place to come and to rest and be safe, to come and to worship God and to serve God. And, and there should not be any barriers for his people to come. Now, if you're a wolf, you're out of here. You cause disunity. We'll address it. But if you're coming here to worship God and serve God and love God and love the people, there should not be hindrances for us to do that. We should be all able to do that freely. Verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord. Here he is, a young man, a child. Even as a child, he was serving God, wearing a linen ephod. Ooh, he was doing well because he actually got to wear a ephod. That is amazing. That means... He was very much involved and, and faithfully serving here. Moreover, his mother used to, to make him a little robe and bring it to him yearly to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Oh, a mother was a mother, always a mother. <laughs> you know, he wants to take care of the, you know, son, it's, you know, it's like a Christmas time and, the, and it's like, what's under the tree? Uh, you got underwear and socks, son, because you need it. <laughs> Mom's going to make sure you have, take care of the basics. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from, his, from this uh, woman for the, for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Oh, what a beautiful moment here. Here she is, a faithfully give with no other promise of any other children. And, and it appears she was coming year after year, and she was coming to provide, okay, son, you're working really hard. I know your little robe is probably tattered and, and worn out. I'm going to make sure you had a new robe every time I come up, just so you had fresh clothes. Even though she, she couldn't have him in the same house, she was still able to, to mother and love and to give. It's just a beautiful thing, right? But notice here, Eli was asking the Lord to bless her, and he did bless her with more children. Three more sons, two more daughters. Because of the fact that she had sacrificed and given her only son, her first son at that time, to the dedication to the Lord. What a beautiful picture it is. 
You know, it's, as, we, as we see this, as bad as Eli's sons were, Samuel was so different. Serving in the same tabernacle, serving so freely, so good, so right. We can say that this is why God raised up Samuel. This is why he raised him up, because God saw two sons that were heirs to Eli were corrupt. It was so bad, he had to raise up someone else up who was going to do it God's way. God knew how bad Eli's sons were, so he guided the whole series of events and situation at hand with even Hannah not even able to have a child until the right timing to bring this son of hers that he gave hers and named Samuel to be raised up and dedicated to the Nazarene vow the whole life from the very beginning all the way up through to serve in this tabernacle with why? Because he was going to be the assessor of Eli. Ultimately, you have to remember, corrupt ministers do not stop or even hinder the work of God. It may look like they're hindering God. They may look like they're getting away with the, the corruption that they're doing within the, in the church. But every time there are men like Eli's sons, we see God raise someone else up like Samuel to replace them eventually to do the work of God. God's work does not stop when God's ministers become corrupt. Nope. He just moves the people, and replaces the, those corrupt leaders, but God's work is going to continue. Somehow, someway, it's going to continue. And here's little Samuel distinguishes himself in his service faithfulness to the Lord. And his service was so exceptional, even enough to wear a linen ephod. That is huge, because that is a priestly garment that we see in Exodus 39, verses 27 through 29. Even though he was a child, he could do what he could do within serving the Lord within the tabernacle. See, Samuel served the Lord better and in a greater way than his own grown-up sons of, of Eli. See, what man looks at in the service of God is often not what the Lord looks at, does he? Oh, he's, he's young. Eyes weak. What does he have to offer? He's, you know, he's, he's, you know, he didn't have all the other credentials and, and initials after their name and, and achievements and all these other That's not how God works. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Faithfulness. Not initials. Not riches. Faithfulness. See, and she blessed him, that little boy with the little robe, and, and the Lord visited Hannah and just made the Lord pour out his life in, in service and she had more kids. Now we see another big offense that Eli's sons do here in verse 22. Now Eli was very old. It means he can't keep up and watch everything. He's old. And he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So it's one thing. <laughs> they're sitting there. They won't say, once you're corrupt, you will never stop with one thing. They're stealing God's portion either threatening the people it never stops here now they're sitting there sleeping with women at the tabernacle you could probably as if based on exodus 38 8 they're probably these were the women men women who were serving and who assembled there at the door of the tabernacle they were greeters or you know ushers you know kind of a thing they were helping some capacity and they're turning around and sleeping with these women Now, it's interesting. Even though Eli was very old, he could hear and know everything. This passage is not focused on Eli's sons at all. That's not the focus here. If you really look at that, it's like, okay, these sons are corrupt, yes. But Eli, what are you doing, man? You are no longer can lead the, the people of Israel as a high priest. You've lost it. 
You've heard everything your sons are doing, but did you do anything? You only rebuked them. You didn't, you didn't, there's no consequences. They're looking at you, old man, saying, you're going to die off here soon. Why are you still hanging around? Get out of here. So we can have full control. Here are your sons committed to sexual immorality with women who came to worship at the tabernacle. What were the pagans doing? Pagans were doing it, and the, all these prostitutes were coming down and sleeping with people. The guys were showing up. And it, what's the difference here? That's you see how twisted the, the world comes into the church, and that was coming into the tabernacle here. Sounds no different as these ancient things are going on here with these sons with sleeping around in their morality. No difference than the modern sex scandals that we see among pastors and preachers today. Verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? Oh, that's, that's, Eli, really, are you asking your sons that question? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the, of the people. So the people are telling the high priest, get your sons in order. You know, what, you know what's going on? In verse 24, know my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. That's all? It's just a report? You make the Lord's people transgress. You're causing them to sin and bringing them in, and they know it's wrong, and you're causing them to sin. There are transgressions here. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Who's going to intercede for you, sons? Nevertheless, remember the key word we read that in on Sunday? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. What? They didn't hear because the Lord desired to kill these two boys? And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Okay, so he asks, uh, he asks a, a question. Why do you do such things? I mean, he's, he's asking, it's a needless question, but he asks a question. It doesn't matter why. Because there could be no good reason to why you are sleeping with women in the, the tabernacle. Don't even give me an excuse. Why would you even give him an opportunity to come up with an excuse? But he did. But Eli did about the worst thing a parent can do in trying to correct their children. All he did is just talk to them. Let's talk, kids. Maybe we can find the root reason here and and work it through. And maybe you'll He just talked. The worst thing you can do in correcting your children. Whining to them, please stop, please stop. What are people going to think? You know I'm in the position here of a high priest. How can you make me look? No. Talk is not the answer to correcting your children at this moment. He never took necessary action, the necessary action to correct the problem. He never disciplined these two boys. Parents would be better off to, to, to yell less and lecture less and to take a sensible action that is more often or appropriate of letting the children see the consequences of their disobedience. There's got to be consequences to get them to understand what they're doing is wicked and corrupt and wrong, sinful. It's got to change. Because you're causing other people to sin. It's bad enough that they stole and indulge in their own lust of other food and corruption and anger and all these things are going on. But when you sit there and now led women who are coming to worship God into sexual immorality, you can get closer to God if you just lay with me. I'm one of the, you know, God's chosen. Man, nothing new. See it today. It's an interesting what he says here. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Ah, ponder on that. 
What should it bring you to the verse in the New Testament that helps us as a child of God if we find ourselves in a, a situation? 1 John 2, 1. If, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, we thank God that there is someone to intercede for us when we sin against the Lord. We can come to the Lord and say, Lord, I have sinned against you. Forgive me. And he intercedes and advocate for us because he did die on the cross for that sin. And he can help you to change. But see, here we will see there's a consequence that their sons would face here. Eli's sons would face because God saw they were corrupt men. And he said, I'm going to judge them. And when the Lord desired to kill them, he had, this is, this, is, this is what is right and good because he was looking for justice. See, the grace of God that we can lean upon our Savior, our Messiah, our, our, our advocate. We have the grace of God. But God, the Father, still ex expects justice. And we can run to the one who paid the price and that was our Lord and Savior for us. For them, God the Father is still looking for justice. And that justice is those boys are going to die and make a way for Samuel to come up to change the situation. And that's exactly how it plays out. Because God gave them exactly what they wanted. They wanted to live their life however they wanted to live it, even as young future high priests. They were priests within that, the tabernacle and they were going to continue to live like against God. It didn't matter to them. They had no fear. They didn't even know the Lord. And there was consequences of that. Justice was served. They had no advocate. They had no way of covering for them on that. Now we see here in 27 through 33 an unknown man of God comes into this picture here. It says, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? How did you get into become a high priest? Because I established your line to be the high priest lineage. Did I not start all the way back to Aaron here? Do you remember who started this? I'm the one that puts this all into place. Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to offer upon my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have committed in my, dwe my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make the, yourselves fat with the beast of all the offerings of, of Israel, my people? Therefore, here's the transition, therefore. The Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will be not will not be an old man in your house, and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. That's twice he's made, made a mention. No one's going to survive very long in your lineage of your household there, Eli. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. The, the most fruitful of time of your life, it should be most fruitful. They're not going to make it very long in that young, young life. So this man of God who we do not know is anonymous character of the Bible. We do not know who's the one that God used to come and be the messenger here. 
But it doesn't matter who he was. It matters the man of it was a man of God, and God raised him up to speak truth to Eli of what was going to happen to his whole family because of the neglect of, of what Eli did and allowed his sons to do. See, the father he's referring to is Aaron, who was the first high priest that God put in position. And since the high priesthood was a hereditary office, Eli was a descendant of Aaron. And of course, God had revealed himself to him as well, that he would be the lineage and he would do the, but not when it came to his sons. But notice here, if you want to know what the responsibilities of a high priest in, in, the, in the tabernacle of that time, verse 28 lines that out for you and I. They were to be my priests, the messenger said. He says, first and foremost, your job as a high priest, Eli, the job of the high priest was to minister unto the Lord before you serve the people. He was to be a servant of God. He was to serve God and to worship God. He was to give his life to God and to live for God. He was not first to the people's He's not the people's priest. He was God's priest. He was first the priest of God, and then God then used him to then serve God's people. Never to put the people before serving God. Don't worship the people and help the people before you are not worshiping your own God first. The second is to offer upon my altar, he says. The priest brought sacrifices for atonement and worship, and that was part of the daily responsibilities. The next was to burn incense, remember, in the tabernacle. Burning incense was a picture of prayer. You to be a man of prayer and to lead people to pray and pray for God's people because the smoke and the, and the, the scent from the incense ascended into heaven. And the priest was to lead the nation in prayer and to pray for the nation. That was, he as a high priest, his higher responsibility than anything else. He was also to wear an ephod before me. It was the priest was clothed in very specific garments for the glory and for the beauty. We see that lined out in the responsibility that he was supposed to do in Exodus chapter 28 verse 2. Why? Because he was represent the, the majesty, the dignity, the glory, the beauty of God to the, to the people. And lastly, all the offerings. The priests were charged also with the responsibility to receive the offerings of God's people and to make good use of those resources, being good stewards of what God's people are bringing in to take care of the tabernacle and to minister and use for the, God's people. That's his responsibility. And so he says, why do you kick against my sacrifice? Why do you kick against what your responsibilities are, Eli? I mean, Eli could have responded by saying, hey, God, it's not me. I'm doing my part. It's my sons. You know, these sons, they're, they're rebellious sons. They're just, they're, they're just boys. I, can't, I couldn't handle it. But Eli had the double accountability for his sons as well. <laughs> he can't pass that. I'm saying, those are my kids. I can't, I don't have control. They're crazy. I can't wait till they grow up and get out of the house. I don't have more responsibility. No, that's not the right attitude. That's not the right, even godly perspective. He was a high priest, but he was also a father. His sons worked for him as priests. And Eli was a bad boss. Just let him do whatever he wanted to do. Those kids just go rampant. He didn't even know the Lord. And because Eli did not correct his sons the way that he should have, Because it appears Eli were more afraid of offering or offending God and less afraid of offending his sons. If he would have just 
really believe, God, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to go against you. I'm going to do what is right and good regardless of if my sons I need to be corrected or a complete stranger need to be corrected or whatever it is, I'm just going to always put you first, God. But he didn't do that. He was just letting and didn't want to offend or go against his sons because of whatever reason. Too busy, got other things important to do, but it resulted in tremendous problems, as we will see. Because he says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me. I told you that was the plan, but now everything changes. It will not stay. The, the priesthood will not stay in your line any longer, Eli. All your descendants will be passed to a whole, it will, all this responsibility will be passed to another line of descendants. But it will stay within the family line of Aaron. Because remember, Aaron had more than one son. <laughs> and the, the lineage, the descendants of Eliezer, where Samuel came from, will be the new line. It was supposed to be through Eli, but that all changed because of wickedness. And now we have uh, Eliezer and his lineage, and now we see this man God has already put in a place called Samuel in place to raise them up. Now it's interesting. That's really biblically noted also in 1 Kings chapter 2, Verses 27 35. But look, read, I'll read 30, uh, 27 for you. It says, So Solomon removed Abathar from being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli as Shiloh. And sure enough, it'd be some time before this transition took place. But the transition took place when Solomon became uh, leader and appointed. And changed out by removing Abathar, who was part of the Eli lineage, that family. And then it all changed, and then uh, the rest of it was put into place. Again, he said, your descendants, they're not going to flower. They're going to die. They're going to get consumed. They're not going to make it old age. And even if they are the ones are, they're going to suffer and they're going to struggle. They're not going to have the... The, 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 pow- the power, the position, or the notoriety as priests, and you're just, you're just going to dwindle to nothing, that whole line now. And lastly, 34 through 36 here. Now this shall be a sign to you. So he gets a sign that it will come upon you, your two sons. How do I know? How, when is this going to take place? He actually gives them a sign and actually tells them when this all takes place. And the first thing that's going to happen is right here. It says, shall be assigned to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So now it shall be a sign. It's the fulfillment of the judgment that God said will happen. Even though it may take many years and it didn't happen until the days of Solomon, God gave Eli an immediate sign to demonstrate that his truthfulness, that judgment will come upon his lineage, and that would start the day where his, both his sons would die the same day. And not only will they die, but Eli will see their death before he dies. Eli will see this and know the judgment of God has come upon his house. Exactly what God said to the messenger to give to Eli. Sad moment, is it not? And he said, not only will I take your sons out, then I'm going to raise up a faithful priest. Who is this faithful priest that's predicted here? 
He was a great priest because he, according to what is in God's heart and in God's mind, this is how faithful this man will be. He was a blessed priest because God said to him, I will build him a sure house and he will walk before my anointed forever. Well, let me give you the summary of the three points here. This promise was partially fulfilled in Samuel's life because why? He functioned as a godly priest, effectively replacing those ungodly sons of Eli. But the second part of that promise, or the partial promise of, of partially filled, is through a man named Zadok in the days of Solomon because he replaced Eli's family line in the priesthood going forward from that point. And all of that lines up with the ultimate high priest. And that is the promise that ultimately was fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus Christ because he is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek we see noted in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. You think, wow, is that too hard of a judgment on Eli and his lineage? God is just. God is fair. God is long-suffering. God is patient. And, and many times people say, oh, the God in the Old Testament. But this was a fitting judgment. Because the sin of Eli's sons were such greed and stealing from God's people God is not going to let that just pass. Instead of receiving the priestly portions, they were rightfully theirs. They were rightfully theirs if they would just do it God's way. God said, you don't do it God's way, you, you, you lose out on all the blessings, you lose out all the favors, you lose all the protection, you lose everything, an unrepentant heart of these men. And Eli's family would one day be reduced down to begging. And it sure did as we continue in the word of God and see it played out in the rest of the word. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you for your instruction, your teaching, your correction, your encouragement. Sobering things as we see in the scripture, Lord, as when we... May we serve and be a light, the fact that we want to serve you rightly and good and right and not for personal gain, not for uh, in any wickedness, in any wicked way of anything of the things you're calling us to do, Lord. Now to 